everybody and welcome to Nintendo Week for the end of week of March 23rd through March 29th. I'm your host, Colin McIsaac, and as always, I'm joined by Alex Plant. The Hyrule Warrior. And Ben Limoureux. It's my Nintendo, and I want it now. We've got a bunch of great news to get to, including new gameplay details on Pokemon Go, a new Famitsu column from Sakurai, Marin's coming to Hyrule Warriors, and more. Uh, after the break, we're going to take a couple of Mystery House questions, as well as we're going to dig into those NX controller rumors uh, that were faked last week. Um, I know you're asking why they were fake, but remember, those are based on the patents for a new Nintendo controller, so they could be very close to the real deal, and there's actually a case to be made that that's a very good thing. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> but for now, we're going to head right on over to the news block, so let's go. So the first story up this week in our news block is that the Pokemon Company revealed a ton of info on Pokemon Go. As always, we're going to have to condense it for the podcast, so if you want the full in-depth details, plus some neat new screenshots they released, be sure to read the story at Gamnesia.com. Anyway, it's going to have Pokemon gyms and eggs and evolution. So the way it works is basically that you, the trainer, are the one training instead of you're training your Pokemon. Uh, so as you walk around and find more Pokemon, you'll essentially be leveling yourself up, and then you'll be able to find stronger Pokemon, get better items like Great Balls and Super Potions, stuff like that. Uh, you'll evolve Pokemon not by leveling them up, but by catching more than one. So you have two Squirtles, for example, then you can choose one of those to evolve into a Wartortle. Uh, and you can also get Pokemon Eggs, which will hatch as you walk in real life. Finally, there are three teams players can join in Pokemon Go, and when you find a real-world location that the game calls a gym, you can claim that gym for your team and leave a Pokemon there to defend it. Once your team's claimed a gym, anyone who is on your team can leave a Pokemon there to help defend it. But but if an opposing team comes in and beats you guys, the gym goes over to them. And then after all this happened, uh, we got a ton of specific details leaked from a field test in Japan. And it's mostly a collection of minor details that just add up to a lot of information. So the only individual piece of news that we'll really mention here on the show is that the beta launch of the game only has the original 151 Pokemon. We don't know if that's going to be true uh, for the full release or for how long it's going to be true. Anyway, uh, but like I said, there's a ton more, including gameplay footage, so that's really neat. Uh, stuff like that, so be sure to check all that out too. So that's two posts you should check out at Gamnesia. Yeah, I'm kind of expecting them to sort of phase in Pokemon from later generations over time to keep people invested in the game long term. Yeah. Because, you know, that's, that's what right. you got to do with the mobile games, so that it's not a quick flash in the pan that doesn't really make any money. And Pokemon is just, you know, the series has been going on so long, and there's, like, roughly 12,000 of those little critters now. So it's <laughs> it's the series that keeps on giving in that regard. So I think it's it's actually really good for that mobile format of being able to keep people hooked month after month. Yeah, agreed. I think I, and I expect the same sort of situation, so... I'd say we'd see that for most of Nintendo's uh, service-based games uh, going forward anyway. Um, but anyway, the thing that stuck out most to me was the way that, that gyms are implemented. It sounds very much like Niantic's other game, Ingress. Mm -hmm. um, and I know there's a very, very dedicated following behind Ingress. So it, that just signals to me that uh, this is going to be a really great uh, competitive location-based game. Uh, which, you know, competition is at the heart of Pokemon. So for them to find a way to, to sort of inject that into Pokemon Go, even though Pokemon Go doesn't have the full battling experience, that, that that's really encouraging mm -hmm. to me. Yeah. I mean, I one thing that I've heard a lot of people talking about is the way that you evolve Pokemon and the way that you, like, level them up and stuff, or I guess not level them up. Um, 
And so I agree that it is weird and it's going to be, it's going to take some getting used to, to evolve Pokemon in this way, you know, by catching more than one. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I have faith that Niantic and the Pokemon company has been testing this a lot. They played with all sorts of different ideas and this is the one that they decided, you know, it works the best practically for mobile devices. And so, you know, having having Pokemon level up in all the same ways that you used to, having them evolve in all the same ways you used to, I'm sure there are a lot of complications and for that reason they decided to switch to a different kind of system and i'm sure that they're working as hard as they can to ensure that that's a really great system really well suited for mobile um so you know just sort of a message to people who are feeling like some of these mechanics might be really weird and don't like them for pokemon it's situated for mobile platforms and so i think a lot of these mechanics you'll find actually work really well for that um and, of course, you've still got the main Pokemon games that will have all the same battling and level-up mechanics that you know and love right now. So, Yeah, I think the real joy of this game isn't necessarily going to be sort of the process of, of using or interacting with your Pokemon. It's going to be the process of going out and discovering Pokemon. Uh, maybe in places you didn't expect, you'll find monsters you didn't expect or... Mm-hmm. Or maybe you'll find the ones that you did expect, and it's it's all going to be about the joy of discovering them. It's not really this isn't really meant to be a mobile version of the Pokemon uh, experiences you already know, right? Especially not the battle system itself. Yeah. Um, you know, it, I think it's about the. It's a lot more about that community aspect and the exploration aspect, you know, the the one that encourages you to find magic in the real world. Um, So I think that's what they're really pushing with Pokemon Go, and for that reason, I think this makes a lot of sense. I don't think it's, you know, too much of a negative. Um, You know, it's different tastes being served, and so it's a good thing. Yeah. Especially for a platform like mobile devices, which will be with you all of the time, as opposed to something like a 3DS, which you play when you want more dedicated gaming experiences. Um, so a phone is more suited for that kind of exploration and collection. Yes. Um, now, Pokémon Tournament debuted at number one in Japan, but it looks like it sold way under expectations, moving less than 37% of its initial shipment at launch. We don't have any sales figures for other regions, but that is certainly a shame to hear. And yeah, that's it's already available as a, uh, a mobile game in Japan and has been since last June, I believe. And from what I understand, uh, it was fairly popular, but it was getting pulled from some arcades, not necessarily because it wasn't attracting customers, but because it didn't really have a very aggressive monetization scheme. So uh, uh, arcade owners weren't making that much money off of it. I see. So if, if, if that's the case, you know, I can see why Japanese gamers wouldn't be that motivated to go spend 60 bucks on it for Wii U if they can play it really cheap at the local arcade. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, so we may see different sales trends in other regions. And yeah, that's a really good point because the arcades had it for so much longer. Um, not mobile platforms. You said mobile platforms. I just want to... Oh, did I? Whoops. Not... Yeah, yeah. I don't don't <laughs> want to get any stuck on Niantic Confused. Here. Yeah. God, that would be a crazy-ass mobile game. <laughs> Um, and Nintendo announced that Marin is indeed coming to Hyrule Warriors Legends as the playable character for the Link's Awakening pack. We don't really know anything beyond that. Uh, Nintendo just posted a piece of concept art on Twitter for people to, you know, look at alongside the announcement. But it does appear that her weapon will somehow be the Sea Lily's Bell, one of the eight instruments from Link's Awakening. They also revealed everything that's coming in the Wind Waker Master Pack, so you can check that out uh, to see, you know, the costumes, all that jazz. Um, so once again, we're all psychic. Yep. Yeah, I feel that's a little mm-hmm. less fair to say in this case, since that was like the obvious character. No, Alex, we're psychic. Everything's obvious when you're psychic. Just this time. <laughs> Every other time was just dumb luck. 
All right, sure. Um, no, I, I love this announcement. Um, I, I think she's a great character. I think uh, she's been really beautifully realized for Hyrule Warriors, just looking at the mm-hmm. concept art. And so I'm really excited to see how she's going to uh, be executed in 3D and all that. Um, so, and it's it's really great to see Nintendo reaching back to these sort of lesser known characters that uh, maybe people who have only played the recent Zelda games might not know. Absolutely. Um, I feel like that was always kind of the, the latent potential of Hyrule Warriors was that it could mm-hmm. it could reach back to all these uh, characters that are beyond just the most popular games. So it's great to see that happening. Sahas Rahala. Huh? Sahas Rahala? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I really the hope old, I said that the, right. I think the old, I did. The oldest sage, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah I was, I was always a little surprised that we didn't have a character like that. I mean, the closest we've got now is, what, the, the, the King of Red Lions is pretty close to yeah. that kind of archetype. If he doesn't but. get an old man NES costume, ugh. <laughs> yeah, I mean, old man is, like, one of the oldest, like, trope characters in, in Zelda that isn't linked. In video like, games. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> he's legendary with his, his fire that shoots you if you try to stab him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think that would be a great assist trophy in Smash Bros, by the way. But uh, anyway, but uh, you mentioned the concept art, and I'm actually kind of surprised that they didn't show off her character render uh, or her at least her character artwork from the game and rather just showed off the character art. I'm wondering if it's like way early in development for her and they just wanted to shut down some kind of rumor or something or other. But um, pack's not coming out for a good while, isn't it? It's like, what, summer? Yeah. So it's probably still, I'd say, four months off. But I'm surprised they don't have her character artwork yet. You know? But it's it's not important. I'm just curious. I mean, they announced it on Twitter, so how prepared could they possibly have been? Um, (laughs) Fair. Fair. No trailer, no, just concept art. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, Which is another weird move in itself, but, I mean, that's... That's another rabbit hole. Well, I feel like the the kind of fan that cares about Hyrule Warriors Legends DLC months before it comes out is the kind of fan that follows Nintendo on Twitter. So it's not yeah. that unusual to me. As we get closer, I'm sure they'll be you know posting trailers uh-huh. and stuff. Uh-huh. Sakurai's latest Famitsu column is here, and he reveals that Satoru Iwata is the one who supported him the most. He also discusses the balance of competitive and casual play in Smash, saying that competitive gamers like the Melee crowd might find technical games like Virtua Fighter more suitable for them than the Smash series. And people in the comment section went nuts. Um, he goes on to say that he'd rather not make sequels to other people's IP, although he did reinvent Kid Icarus, and he says in some way uh, working on Smash is like making remakes of other IP. Um, and finally, he shares his thoughts on Street Pass, saying that he thinks the whole system has a long way to go before it's the really uh, communicative, fun-sharing vision that Nintendo had for it. And he also proposes ideas for other network features like GPS tracking. Um, now, this information was conveyed into English by paraphrase rather than anyone actually translating his writing, so it's not worth digging way into these stories, but I'm wondering if you guys have any lighter thoughts on some of these subjects. I just think that I'd really like to see... Uh Sakurai work on a, a brand new IP again and just come up with something new because he's clearly mm. a very you know creative man but mm-hmm. he really has sort of been relegated to taking existing Nintendo IP and you know changing them up a little bit and he's done a great job at that I just I think it would yeah. be interesting to see another Sakurai original yeah for sure yeah I, I feel like there hasn't really been one since Kirby and and Kirby was is pretty old at this point um, well yeah over 25 years now right wow yeah um, 91. I, I still love that he's he's telling fans of probably the most popular Smash game today uh, that they should go play another fighting game. That's, that's, <laughs> that's just, that just blows my mind. 
Uh, I mean, I, I don't think he's saying that they should go play another fighting game. I think he's saying, you know, this isn't quite what Smash is supposed to be, so, you so know, you guys... So, go play another fighting have, game. You guys... Well, you guys can have your accident and enjoy the accident, but uh, if yeah. you're looking to Smash 4, if you're complaining about Smash 4, you know, fuck off. <laughs> sure. Well, I mean, they'll, they'll always have melee, so... Exactly. Exactly. I think he's. I think he's saying. You know, if if those of you who play melee and like it for that reason want to graduate to a newer game, then don't look at Smash. Look at something else. Sure. And um, and I and I don't really disagree so. with him. I just think it's. I just think it's funny. No. Yeah. I agree. <laughs> Very predictably, it rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. Even if it wasn't. Oh, yeah. You know that big of a deal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, especially with something like this, where it's just paraphrased into yeah. English and not actually translated. You know. First of all, his words are. I wouldn't say inflammatory, but it's a subject that, peop- that a lot of people are really passionate about. And then second of all, I mean, when it's not actually explicitly stated, people are going to impose their much stronger, much more reactionary beliefs about what it is that he mm-hmm. said and about what he's trying to communicate uh, onto, such a, onto such a text. And so I think people overreacted in that sense. Um, move on. Sure. Speaking of Smash, actually, there is a new technique in Smash 4 that's been exposed called Bidu, which was actually discovered a long time ago in Japan, but a popular channel called My Smash Corner recently posted a video all about the technique, how to perform it, the ways it can be used, and so on. Um, If you're really interested in learning about that, you can go ahead and watch the video, but basically it means that you can perform advanced techniques way easier. Uh, None of us here can speak about the technique itself with particular insight, since we're not really competitive Smashers, but I do know that it comes with its own set of pitfalls uh, because it essentially makes performing a bunch of other technical skills way easier but at the same time the bidu itself is a really really technical move so yeah i like to be in that little sweet spot where i can beat up on all my friends but i'd get crushed if i went online and i'm pretty content yeah. to stay there <laughs> yep mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, i've actually been a little surprised by how well i've done online but certainly i when i go up against a player that has any semblance of, of competitive skill it all goes out right. the window yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm curious to see how this is actually going to evolve the metagame, because something like Melee, you know, wave dashing is something that obviously just exploded what Melee was capable of doing, uh, and what people were capable of doing within Melee. It, it's a huge part of the reason that this skill gap is so high. Um, and so I'm curious to see, first of all, if the skill gap is really going to expand because of this. One of the interesting complications about it is that uh, I believe it works best with like a pro controller or the gamepad, so not the GameCube controller. Mm-hmm. In other words, not a wired controller, so there's latency. Um, so the highest tier professional smashers are not going to like that part of it um but and also because there's all these patches that come out for smash 2 so who knows if they'll you know change something there it's not a glitch it's just a technique but it's you know uh, it seems like it probably wasn't intended yeah i'm always a little disheartened when uh exploits kind of dominate the metagame because it seems like like you were saying that that creates this massive skill gap between newcomers and hardcore players and while i think it's great that competitive games uh, within competitive games, the more hardcore players, because they put in the time and they put in the practice and they perfect their skills, there is a pretty, mm-hmm. you know, big skill gap. Um, that's a skill gap that's achieved through hard work. It's not a skill gap that's achieved through the game just being broken. And if you know the exploits, you can you can take advantage of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel like in a game like Smash, in particular, where it's designed to be approachable to newcomers, those kinds of things kind of push people away. Uh, right. Right. So, uh, I, I, if, if, if this isn't intentional, I do kind of hope that they patch it. Interesting. 
So our last story for the news block is that Mitomo, My Nintendo, and an improved eShop are all launching on March 31st. So they are launching technically before the fiscal year is over. That's true. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, Mitomo and My Nintendo, I think, are pretty well understood at this point, or at least we've talked about them in other episodes, so there's nothing really new to add about those two pieces. But the new eShop is going to be compatible on web browsers, so you can actually get there from computers or mobile devices, buy games online that way, and send them directly to your 3DS or Wii U to download. Uh, the way they talk about it also makes it sound like they're redesigning the storefront, so it'll be easier to find things and, you know, it'll just be a better storefront all around uh which is good i think because the eShop as it is is not only pretty clunky but it's basically a whole other platform on 3ds than on wii u so it'll be good to unify them and improve the experience all around yeah i like everything about this and we've yeah, only got uh well like a, a day and a few hours to wait probably so <laughs> Woo! it's uh it's great to know that nintendo is focusing on the browser web storefront but it's also kind of disheartening that it took them until the end of the generation to do it yeah <laughs> and yeah also anyone who has a 3ds and wii u isn't really going to be able to take advantage of this uh yeah so i feel like you know the benefits of not only the eShop, but also my Nintendo, they're not really something we're going to feel uh, very strongly until NX comes out. Yeah, that's yeah. that's what I see this as more so, is just sort of laying the groundwork for a better, more cohesive experience on NX. Yeah, completely agreed. Um, well, that's all for our news block, so we're going to take it to the lightning round. And now we have arrived at the beloved lightning round, where we bring you little nuggets of information from the past week. If you want to read more about any of the stories uh, in the lightning round, or any of the ones we discussed earlier, you can check them out at Gamnesia.com. The latest podcast episode will show up in the scrolling feature bar at the top of the site, and on that page you'll see all these links. Alright, so first up, recent releases and stuff that is now available for you. On Wii U, you can now get Shantae Risky's Revenge Director's Cut on the eShop. Meanwhile, you can get Yoshi's Story on the Virtual Console in North America, and Star Fox 64 on the Virtual Console in Europe. Plus, Nintendo's holding a Miiverse contest for the best time in the snowboarding minigame from Zelda Twilight Princess HD. On 3DS, you can now get Hyrule Warriors Legends, although be warned if you don't have a new 3DS because on the older models it runs like garbage. But the good news is, in Europe, they just released the Hyrule Edition new 3DS XL. In Europe, you can now get both Donkey Kong Country games on the new 3DS eShop, while North America now has Earthbound, Super Mario Kart, and Donkey Kong Country 1. You can also get costume DLC in Bravely Second by pre-ordering at GameStop. And finally, the last chance to get Celebi was a few days ago, and I really wanted one, but I suck and forgot, so if anyone has an extra, come find me. <laughs> Uh, and on both platforms, uh, you can now get Mini Mario and Friends Amiibo Challenge by buying an Amiibo in stores. Otherwise, the game launches next month, I think. Uh, and you can also now pre-order the Kirby series and the Isabel Amiibo at Best Buy. And we've got a bunch of upcoming dates to look out for. March 30th, Nintendo's hosting a level design course for children in San Francisco. March 31st, Wii Street U is officially shutting down, but Mitomo, My Nintendo, and a new eShop are all launching. Sometime in April, we're getting two new updates for Splatoon and Binding of Isaac Afterbirth on Wii U. April 1st, you can get Jirachi through Mystery Gift over Wi-Fi in any of the 3DS Pokemon games. April 3rd, Pokemon Sun and Moon will be unveiled on a Pokemon variety show in Japan. This likely means we'll see it here in the West about a day earlier on April 2nd. April 4th, Mario Kart TV's online portal is officially shutting down. And April 15th, Koro Koro will reveal details on Pokemon Sun and Moon. Again, probably means a day earlier so for the West. And possibly even earlier just because uh, leaks tend to come out of Koro Koro quite a lot, people getting scans before the street date, so. True, true. 
Uh, and then finally, a rundown of all the smaller things that happened in the last week. Nintendo released a ton of new promo stuff for Star Fox Zero, including its English cinematic opening, a new trailer featuring a nostalgic trip through the series' history, and screenshots of all the game's locations. Miyamoto also spoke about the game, saying Nintendo chose the returning vehicles for Star Fox Zero based on the new styles of gameplay they wanted to highlight, and that Star Fox Zero explores whether its heroes and villains are truly good or evil. That deep Star Fox plot we've all been looking yeah, for. Right? <laughs> General know, Pepper's guys, tragic guys, backstory. Did you guys play Command? There were, like, branching endings and crap. I did, yes! Fox became an alcoholic. <laughs> that see? was sad. Star Fox got some deep... <laughs> deep. Uh, we got new footage from Kirby Planet Robobot, including three new armor copy abilities and a new robotic Wispy Woods boss fight, alongside footage of an entire stage for both Star Fox Guard and Metroid Prime Federation Force. We've also got 15 new minutes of footage from Monster Hunter Stories, a new Bravely Second trailer that highlights its story, characters, and battle systems, and the full prologue of Ace Attorney 6 with English subtitles. Hyrule Warriors Legends had a WonderCon panel revealing tons of information, including that Tingle was originally going to be a part of Linkle's story. I think that would have been really appropriate, given the sort right? of tone of Linkle's story and how she's <laughs> got uh, all this sort of pressure on her to. Tingle uh, could be her fairy. <gasps> I, I was just thinking. I was just thinking Tingle would be a nice foil to her because she's actually behaves like a hero, and Tingle it really is just the crazy old guy who thinks he's a fairy. Right. That's why it would be so great. Um, but yeah, <laughs> no, that'd be that would have been excellent. <laughs> uh, anyway, Miyamoto revealed that the greatest change he's seen on all his time making video games is how open the field has become to new players and new creators. He particularly says it gives him a lot of hope that new development tools let even the smallest teams bring their creations to life. Thanks, Unreal Engine. <laughs> Axiom Verge uses the Wii U gamepad for inventory management and off-TV play. And that's actually going to be really cool just because there's like 30 collectible weapons in that game, so being able to switch yeah, between, between them with the tap of a touchscreen is going to be extremely extremely convenient for sure uh natsume wants to add more harvest moon games to the wii u virtual console this year's video game hall of fame nominees include zelda pokemon sonic and more and wreck it ralph's director still wants the sequel to feature mario the amazing amiibo chart that lists all the games amiibo work with and what they do has been updated once more you can save hyrule in style with a retro inspired zelda gamepad protector Fans have made a really amazing quality series of Metroid-style levels in Super Mario Maker. Another fan used a crazy glitch in Super Mario World to inject the source code of Flappy Bird, which means that he can play Flappy Bird in Super Mario World as Mario on an original, completely unmodded Super Nintendo. Life goals. That just blows my mind. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's gonna sell like a million copies. Yeah. <laughs> uh... Nintendo deleted all the videos of the fan-made Twilight Princess HD remake, but the project still lives on. Nintendo of Korea recently laid off all its staff except for 10 remaining employees. Analyst Sirkan Toto expects Nintendo to monetize their mobile games really aggressively. Really Freakin' Clever argues that Pokemon Snap is the most important thing Nintendo ever did with Pokemon. Timely, too, because that's coming to the Japanese Virtual Console soon. Nintendo is trying to trademark the Mario coin sound in Japan. Mega Man Battle Network originally started as a horror game. And Japan is holding another real-world Squid Sisters concert inspired by Splatoon. So that's all for the news portion of this week's show. We're going to take a quick break, but don't touch that pause button because we will be right back with more awesome discussions, this time about the NX controller and questions from listeners like you.
everybody, we are back with more Nintendo Week. I'm your host, Colin McIsaac, joined as always by Alex Plant. I'm ready. And Ben Lamoureux. Me too. For the latter half of the show, we're going to bring you a few Mystery House questions, since we haven't done that in a little while now. But before we do, we're introducing a new segment called The Tea Table to discuss the recent rumors about the NX controller being leaked. We know it was fake, but this is still an extremely important moment in the Nintendo narrative for reasons that you're about to find out. So with that, let's head over to The Tea Table. Here we are with a segment of the show which we are officially naming the Tea Table. For you longtime listeners, this is the old school discussion segment of the show where we share our long form thoughts on a specific subject, whether it's, you know, recent news or something in Nintendo's past, something about their games, whatever it may be. So recently, the Nintendo community exploded over a few images that appeared to show the NX controller with an oval-shaped touchscreen, click wheel shoulder buttons, and no face buttons. You can check out the images at Gamnesia, of course, but they were confirmed to be fake. The one we talked about last week on the show was an incredible fake job, uh, all done on the computer, and the ones that followed suit were 3D printed units based on the same model. So if these things are confirmed fake, why bother talking about them, right? Well. We know that they're based directly off the patents that Nintendo recently filed for a new controller. So much so, in fact, that they're almost the spitting image, albeit polished up, of course, to look like a finished project and not just pencil lines. Uh, but we also know that the editor-in-chief of Game Informer heard information that he couldn't confirm previously that the NX controller has no face buttons. All this is to say, this may not be the NX controller, but there's a very good chance that the real thing will be something very similar, at least in concept, if not in appearance as well. So all of us in the Nintendo community are going to have to start getting used to this idea now if we don't want to risk having a terrible E3. Uh, but the good news is that this controller could actually be an incredible idea. So Alex here is incredible at taking Nintendo's wacky concepts and explaining them in a way that does justice to why they just might be brilliant. And he actually came out with one of his legendary editorials on the subject, so be sure to check that out. But uh, Alex, I'll let you take it away. So... I've got a lot to say, and a lot of it will be context for kind of why I think the idea is actually not half bad. So if mm -hmm. you guys uh, want to jump in, just do so at any time. Okay. Um, so I think at first glance, when a lot of people saw this design, they probably thought something like, how am I going to use a controller that doesn't have any buttons, any physical buttons? Right. Uh, and if you start from that assumption that phys fixed button inputs are what make a game controller, that they're necessary for video games, of course you're going to feel that way. But uh, one thing that we are seeing in today's video game market is that is that is no longer the default assumption. In fact, it's probably more accurate at this point to say that most video games don't actually require button inputs mm -hmm. because they use touchscreens. Yeah. People seem generally happy with those touchscreen games, so it makes... And to clarify, these are... You know, this is a much wider audience. This isn't the traditional gaming audience. These are the people who graduated from Wii to mobile devices. These are the people who decided, you know, I love video games, but I can't figure out these controllers. The smartphone in my pocket has billions of apps that are, there are lots of great games there, and that's how they get their primary gaming needs. So for traditional gamers in that sense, uh, yeah, it doesn't make sense to hear those kinds of comments, but remember, there's lots of other video games out there. This isn't just about the home console AAA experiences, this is about gaming as a whole. Right, and as Nintendo showed with the Wii, they're they're trying to bring in non-traditional gamers into the sort of gaming fold. So. Exactly. Yeah, so kind of in light of what you guys just said, uh, Nintendo's space in this modern gaming market is kind of weird. 
Because on the one hand, they've been this longtime legacy player in video game hardware for like more than 30 years at this point. Mm-hmm. So based on that history, they have a lot of expectations about what kind their games are supposed to be like, uh, how their game controllers should be. Uh, but on the other hand, you have their two most major competitors, uh, Sony and Microsoft. Uh, they've kind of established a standardized baseline for what a controller should be. Uh, Dual analog, four face buttons, uh, two shoulder buttons on each side, and that's kind of dominated the uh, home console and PC gaming markets that we kind of now find ourselves in. And Mm -hmm. on, you know, yet another hand, you now have that new mobile market that's now absorbing most of the uh, new players that Nintendo kind of draws on with each new console, and that's, you know, young kids and, and family gamers. Yeah. Now, Nintendo kind of saw that this was happening to them uh, with uh, machines like N64 and GameCube. And so looking back on what they did with DS and Wii, those platforms were able to succeed because they were throwing out all the conventional wisdom that their competitors were using for their controllers. Uh, right. And not just those systems. The NES did that. I mean, that's yeah. they've been iterating hardware for a long time. They've always been doing wacky shit with their controllers. The NES controller was totally revolutionary. That's basically the father of the modern game. The controller. N64 controller and, was designed for aliens. Yeah, <laughs> that was exactly my next point. <laughs> basically, the Super Nintendo controller and the GameCube controller are the only ones that iterated rather than rethought what a controller was supposed to be. Right, right. And even the Game Boy, uh, in terms of display technology, all of its competitors were trying to use color screens, and it decided, oh, well, we don't need a color screen. We just need kind of more diverse games than what they were seeing on other other machines, and we don't need the the, the screen to do that. We just kind of need a a machine that's easy to use and cheap. Mm -hmm. Very cheap. Um, Anyway, very, very, very cheap. So the question that they started with when they were making DS and Wii was, do these fancy, complicated uh, bells and whistles that we see on modern controllers really make gaming better? And in particular, do they really make gaming better for everyone? Or could they make more people happy by making a new kind of interface that's designed for all those everyday people who are kind of falling through the cracks, who aren't really familiar with with those kinds of game controls? Mm -hmm. And so you had Nintendo pioneering the first major use of a touchscreen in a video game system, not focusing on bringing, you know, like like the PSP did, uh, not focusing on bringing more stuff over from console controllers onto the handhelds. The PSP had that nub, if you remember, and DS had no analog control whatsoever. It had the touchscreen. Um, and then after that, they made the Wii controller, which was a controller that was designed to be as easy to use as a TV remote. Right. And the interesting thing I think about these kinds of control inputs is that, you know, a lot of people are saying about this idea of an NX controller that it doesn't make sense to simplify things because it's going to be stripping away features. But you look at stuff like the DS, the Wii, maybe they won't be quite as simplified as what proposed NX controller could look like, but they made hardcore gamers who traditionally stuck with Nintendo happy. You look at games like Twilight Princess, you look at games like Mario Galaxy, you look at games like the Pokemon games on DS, Super Mario 64 DS, lots and lots of games made use of these features in ways that made it simple and accessible for widespread audiences and still kept their core fan base really, really happy. Metroid Prime Trilogy, I mean, just look at how great that one was. Yeah, and if if there were games that made players unhappy, it's because those games were lower quality. A good example being Metroid Other M. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. But these kinds of innovations can simplify things and make them a lot more accessible for a lot wider audiences of people without stripping away features. In fact, they can do it by innovating features and making them more rich. 
or making them more usable to people that don't really see buttons as the ideal way to control their consumer electronics. Which kind of brings me back around to the whole idea of having a controller with a touchscreen on it. Uh, You may think that Nintendo already tried this. They made the Wii U gamepad. Um, but, of course, anyone who's actually used a Wii U gamepad knows it's not really as easy to use as a, a smartphone or even a TV remote. Right. Um, it's still got all the baggage from other controllers. Mm-hmm. It just has a TV screen in the middle of it. And even though that screen's a touchscreen, that screen is also not as easy to use as a phone screen. Uh, because the controller right. itself is really bulky. Um, it's really hard to really make use of the touchscreen while holding the thing with both hands, which is not true for a phone. Um, so it's it's not a solution to the problem of making things usable for people who are used to touchscreens. It, right, it's, exactly. It's an inferior controller for people who like touchscreens. It's inferior to touchscreens, and it's inferior to a normal traditional gaming controller. I mean, as much as someone might like the touch input and off-TV play, you got to recognize that's something Nintendo fans love, but it's not something that everyone can love. Right. So that brings us to this new controller design, where the touchscreen, rather than being an embedded feature in a traditional controller, is now the bread and butter of the controller. You still have the analog sticks, so you can still have the kind of fine character control that you don't really get on a mobile phone. But, you know, just having two analog sticks isn't necessarily going to be completely outlandishly complicated to a a new player. Um, They can try out the analog sticks, and that's the only new thing they have to pick up, Mm -hmm. uh, depending on how the game is designed, of course. Um, It's just that now you also have this great touchscreen that we would want to hope is just as responsive and just as easy to use as the touchscreens on their phones. Right. That opens up a lot of gameplay possibilities. Like one that came to mind that I didn't mention in the article because I wanted to save it for the podcast because I love you guys is um, in Pikmin, uh, they made an effort to uh, introduce a touch option for Pikmin three kind of posthumously. And the way it worked was you held one hand on the analog sticks and used kind of a stylus with the other hand. But you wouldn't need to control it that way on this controller. You could hold the controller in both hands and just reach out, reach your thumbs over to the screen every time you need to, you know, tap to throw a Pikmin. Mm-hmm. So it would really make good use of interplay between sticks and maybe the triggers and a touchscreen. It wouldn't be difficult to use. It, you wouldn't have to hold the controller in a weird way comp- compared to a tra- traditional right. controller. And at the same time, it would work in very much the same way that people's phones do. Right. Nice. And and I think that the best potential for this thing is in a handheld gaming device specifically. Yeah, I agree with that too. That may well be what the patent is for anyway, you know. We don't know that it's specifically just a controller for a home console. But I think that given how much we've been hearing about the NX and the way that it aims to merge their handheld and home console devices, that it's safest to assume that whatever this patent comes to be would work essentially like the handheld component of an NX that works more like a traditional console. So you can take this thing on the road to play your games and even to use it as a controller for the NX in the living room, but that it won't be just the controller for a home console system. It'll be a handheld in many ways its own right, uh, and that the home console can also have other more traditional controls. Obviously, if they just make it the controller, then the core gaming audience is going to blow a gasket. The casual audience won't understand it at all, and that's just going to be a whole other nightmare. So, yeah, after all the confusion with Wii U, I would like to think that Nintendo has learned and wouldn't sort of repeat that same mistake. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I think and, I think you guys are, are both right in that this would be ideal as a kind of Nintendo version of a mobile device that can right. also cross over to your console if you happen to have both. Exactly. 
Um, I, I really don't think that it would fix the problem they had with Wii U in terms of the controller adding so much to the cost of the hardware that they had to actually uh, bootstrap right. the hardware. Um, right. So from that perspective, yeah, it would be really be a really big problem if they banked on this idea and then the idea, let's just say, made the console too expensive for the, the experiences that it's offering. Right. And I think they recognize that. I think they know that. I don't think they're stupid enough to do that kind of thing. But, uh, yeah, but but this controller is, you know, it's a really sleek, functional design. It looks very much on par with the devices that are popular today, like smartphones, like you're talking about. Um, and I think that that's one of the biggest benefits of an NX that features a handheld component like this thing, is that all of these innovations in the controls are designed with the goal to move gaming forward and make it more accessible. Um, and I think that a lot of people fear that these kinds of changes, like no face buttons, will end up dumbing down gaming. But I think there's real potential for it to advance gaming. The best design innovations ever are always the ones that make things more intuitive and yet more feature-rich at the same time. Uh, you know, as we were just talking about with the examples a moment ago uh, for the control schemes, these kinds of dynamic inputs let players control more features more precisely and more easily. Think about scrolling through items in Zelda. Think about scrolling through weapons in Fire Emblem just by dragging your finger along where it already is just a tad. Um, you know, think about the not having to reach all the way over to reach different parts of the touchscreen. Um, and if you if you read the article, there are much, much richer explanations of other kinds of control schemes, too, uh, like using Mario with just the two sticks. Um, there's a lot of really great potential in this kind of a control scheme. And, you know, it's, it's about more features, more precisely, more easily. So everyone has a better experience, traditional gamers included. And, and that's why I'm really fascinated and really hopeful, honestly, that the real deal is a lot like these fakes. Because if you couple that with how beautifully this kind of device fits into uh, modern mass market consumer electronics like the iPhone, uh, the portable version of NX could be a wildly successful platform for the handheld side of gaming. And then the core fans who really want the TV experience and the dedicated home console setup can enjoy it all the same. It's utterly brilliant, honestly. Yeah, um, I agreed with, with 100% of what you just said. Um, now, I think another interesting question to tackle is, you know, how well could this controller handle the kinds of traditional inputs that people ex kind of expect to see from their more complicated games? Right, right. One of the big examples is Smash Bros. How would this work? Um, right. I guess the question is, you know, if Nintendo's really serious about trying to, to do more with fewer fixed inputs, so that's buttons, um, I'd imagine that they'd be really interested in tackling ways to give you the same number of actions yeah. but you know doing it in such a way that requires fewer buttons absolutely um and you know you you look at more complex games like smash i actually in the comments section of this article i proposed a control scheme on this purported sort of device um for smash bros that could work uh check that out if you're interested um but i think the real point to draw from that is that even the most complicated games with creativity and ingenuity, they can come up with a control scheme that actually works really, really well with this thing. Yep. And that'll be a big thing, just like, you know, Wii U before it and Wii before that is it's definitely a really interesting idea, but implementation is going to be huge. You know, they got to they gotta nail this. Yeah, Absolutely. They, they, they do have to be really thoughtful about what they can do without kind of the extra inputs that people expect. Uh, right, one option, of right. course, is to have touchscreen buttons, and if the haptic technology really is where it needs to be, that's a possibility. Uh, I don't think Nintendo would try that if the haptic technology weren't good enough to actually replace a button. 
So well, that, and who knows? You know, a lot of the things that they could be designing might not even need haptic technology. They could just use touchscreen inputs for not not inputs that need action, but rather just something like selecting an item. Yeah, a good example actually is you know it's very rare that you'll use the A button in a Zelda game uh, for anything that would require necessarily precise timing. The one thing I can think of is maybe dodging enemies in battle, but you could easily use a different button for that. I don't know. I've devised some amazing roll text, dude. Eh, I think rolling, <laughs> I think, I think rolling's a little outdated, honestly. I, well, obviously, uh, but you know, when you're talking to someone, you could just tap the screen. Uh, if you want to mm-hmm. pick up an item, you could just like, like a jar, for example, you could just tap the jar to pick it up tap again to throw mm-hmm. it like that's not something that requires a button and precise timing yeah you know maybe throwing a bomb you don't necessarily need uh, a precise timing or a button for that you just need mm-hmm. kind of to line yourself up in a certain way tap where you want to throw and it goes there right uh it, they could have traditional aiming controls but for people who are familiar with touch devices maybe you pull out your bow and you tap an enemy and you shoot it like there are lots of ways that they can make a uh, really good use of the, the, the touch interface to do the actions yeah. that would traditionally be associated with buttons. Yeah. We're going a little over time here. Uh, is there anything else that's really pressing that people want to say, or should we move on to the mystery house? I'm good to move on. I have a All lot right. of really miscellaneous other things that, about this idea that uh, I really like, <laughs> but uh, yeah, they're not, they're not pressing or anything. Uh-huh. All right. Um, yeah, so we got to wrap it up a little bit here in this segment, but um, check out Alex's article for sure if you're interested in this kind of stuff. Whether or not Nintendo could implement it is maybe a whole other discussion of its own, because um, that does open a lot of... It's a huge can of worms, basically. Um, but at least in theory, this kind of idea could be really, really fantastic. Um, and I guess... Uh, something that I think is a really good conclusion to this discussion is something that I've heard uh, a couple commenters, maybe even just one repeating it, uh, but say on Gamnesia a lot, you know, if anybody has the right to innovate the basic traditional gaming controller, it's Nintendo. I mean, just look at how amazingly successful they were with the NES, with the DS, with the Wii. They've done it before, so they've earned the right. Yeah, and I'll I'll sort of reiterate something you said before and, and say that People see the NES as being a very traditional console, but when it first debuted, it was oh very, my god! It was no a way. it was a Wii style revolution. It really was. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, so that's the tea table for this week. We are pressed on time, so we're gonna have a quick mystery house. Let's head over there real quick. Boom. We're there. Okay. We're there! Here we are at the Mystery House, where we answer questions from listeners like you. If you have your own questions you'd like us to answer, you can send them into colonicamnesia.com. You know, we love hearing from you guys, and we've got you've got a really good chance of being answered here on the show. Uh, we are backed up quite a bit. We've had a great flood of new questions in the last several weeks, so don't be disheartened if you take a few weeks to get your question on the show, but yeah. First up is a question from Derek Freely, who asks about the Super Nintendo Virtual Console lineup for New 3DS, and he wants to know, with Japan getting games like Fire Emblem coming in the future, whether Nintendo might use this opportunity to localize some of the games that we never got in the West. So Derek is actually a childhood friend of mine, so I will, oh, really? an- I will answer his question. All right. I think the simple answer is no. Um, <laughs> but the reason why I think these, the answer is no is because I don't think the Super Nintendo Virtual Console is an especially strategic move for n- new Nintendo 3DS. I think it's a way to milk more money out of people who bought a 3DS, uh, because while Nintendo is still releasing a lot of games for 3DS, the pipeline is probably going to start significantly slowing down. Uh, certainly not as much as Wii U uh, is this year. 
I would imagine. But mm-hmm. uh, but they're they're padding the lineup. They're they're just going to bring over the most popular games from Wii U. I'd imagine they're not using this to kind of give people a chance to uh, fill out their Super Nintendo libraries. Otherwise, I think we'd see cross buy, uh, which they obviously didn't prioritize. Right. Right. Um, next up is a question from Luke Argila, which is very appropriate for this week's episode. He asks, So I've heard you guys talk about how you want Zelda U to be a cross-related game for both Wii U and NX. But why? Wouldn't it piss off a lot of people and also hurt the NX sales since it would be so divided? So, I'm going to take this one. My answer to this is yes, it would piss off the Wii U owners who bought the system just for Zelda U. But... Pissing those customers off is a lot less dangerous to Nintendo than letting a Zelda game this important for the series slip by in a console with as few owners as Wii U has. Uh, You know, the plain and simple story is that Nintendo has, time and again, proven that they want this game to be a revolution in the Zelda series. And Zelda is a series that desperately needs a revolution. You know, Nintendo fans may still love Zelda the way it is, but it's getting less and less popular with average gamers by the day. We know this. This is sales data. This is market trends. This is cold, hard numbers. And Zelda is, I would say, Nintendo's third most important IP behind Mario and Pokemon. They simply can't afford for this series to keep losing steam at that rate. Uh, And releasing this game on the Wii U, Nintendo's worst-selling home console in history that's already being moved aside for their next system, the NX, That would guarantee, beyond any shadow of a doubt, that only the gamers who are already established Zelda fans will buy it. So, a cross-platform launch may set off some people, but, you know, if you're one of those people, be honest with yourself. You'd buy it anyway, you'd get over it real quick, and you'd stay a Nintendo fan. So, you know, we really have to look at the pros and cons of this, because if they release it on both platforms, then the con is that some of their fans will get huffy for a little while, because they bought a Wii U a little too early. But the pro is that they'd essentially relaunch the Zelda brand stronger than it's ever been in recent memory. But if they release it on Wii U alone, the pro is that they'll avoid some angry online comments but nothing more dangerous than that. (laughs) And the con is that they'll be putting the most amount of work ever into a game that's chained to a console that's already proven to be an abject market failure, thereby bringing next to zero new customers into the Zelda fanbase and continuing their third most important series down its path to irrelevance. Which would also mean, by the way, that they'd need to do something as big or bigger than Zelda U again to save the series. In short, Wii U is dead, the Zelda series is dying. I mean, I know it's hard to swallow, but that's just the truth. And maybe when they started Zelda U, they were hoping to kill those two birds with one stone, but ever since then, the birds have been flying away. And now, if they try, they're gonna miss both, and then they're gonna need to find another rock. So, but they know all of this. The new Zelda game isn't their attempt to save the Wii U. It's their attempt to save Zelda, and that's exactly what they're doing. Yeah, agreed on all counts, again. Um, You kind of alluded to this when you said it's the Zelda game that's got the most work put into it, Mm -hmm. but I think it's also important to underline that this is clearly going to be the most expensive Zelda game they've ever made. Yeah, that's what I mean. Possibly the most expensive game they've ever made, and so for it to not have a very good shot at making back its investment is not a very good, uh, good way to continue the series. Right, right. Which, you know, again, it's the thrust of your point, obviously, but I just wanted to distill right. that. And if a we're bit. right about uh, NX doing some interesting, innovative things with its controller and sort of 
Nintendo using it to sort of branch out to attract new gamers again, that is a great way to revitalize Zelda. If you can get them hooked on this, oh, you know, sure. big, amazing new game because they, you know, they wanted to try out NX and they got hooked on it, that's, that'd be wonderful. And we saw how well Twilight Princess did with a cross-generation launch. And I don't think, you know, there was really any loss of Zelda fans due to them being angry about the game cross-launching. Right. So I, I don't really see a few mildly irritated fans as being that big of a con. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and and while I personally am excited for the Wii U gamepad features, uh, I, the last thing I would want is for what they're hoping to be the ultimate Zelda game to be chained to a, a controller that nobody really seems to like. Um, right. So there's that as well. Right. Yeah. Uh, but we'll cap off the show with a fun question. So this is our last one for the week. Ben Kaunitz asks, "Who are your mains or your favorite characters in Smash and Mario Kart?" Ben, you want to start off? Yeah, uh, for Smash Bros, at least this generation around, I play Samus was my main until Cloud came out, and now I've probably been playing Cloud more than Samus, but I, I'm still probably a little better as uh, hmm. as Samus. So those two are easily the characters I use most, but I also play a little bit of uh, a little bit of everything. I play a little bit of Sheik, a little bit of Duck Hunt, some Captain Falcon, some Little Mac, nice. but definitely Samus and Little Mac or uh, Samus and uh, Cloud are my two mains. And nice. then for Mario Kart. It's always a race between we, me and one of my best friends to see which one of us can uh, select Luigi first. So <laughs> if I don't manage to get Luigi, then I just go with a uh, Koopa Troopa. All right. Uh, for me, uh, in Mario Kart 8, I obviously like Waluigi the best. Um, so I often use him in multiplayer, but I'm actually better with the medium weights, so I normally use Yoshi for when I want to be at my best, uh, like in the single-player modes, for example. Uh, more traditionally, Toad's my guy. Mario Kart Wii, Mario Kart 7, love him. Uh, especially the older games, uh, use Toad a lot. Um, as for Smash, I really like Link and Young Link in Melee, uh, and I loved Olimar in Brawl. Olimar in Brawl is the worst thing in the universe, <laughs> and you're a bad person um, for using it. <laughs> uh, Smash 4 is a little harder to nail down because of all the patches, but I do really like goofy characters, just in general. So I use Villager and Jigglypuff a lot, um, but I've also found myself liking a lot of different characters. Uh, you know, I use Ryu, Cloud, Mario, Wario, Yoshi, Mewtwo, Roy, Lucas, a lot. Lots of characters. There are lots of characters, so it seems like a waste if you don't use most of them. Exactly. Um, so for me, Mario Kart, uh, I'll, I'll start with Mario Kart 8 like, like Colin did. Um, I started off with Lemmy Koopa, actually. <laughs> and then when the first round of DLC came out, I switched over to Tanuki Mario. And then when the second set of D- DLC came out, I switched over to Villager. So I've gone through a few for Mario Kart. Uh, mm. In the past, it was always uh, Toad or Yoshi, but kind of as the roster's grown, I've expanded my horizons a little bit. Um, for Smash, uh, Ben can attest to this, but, but my main <laughs> is Random. It's true. I love playing as pretty much everyone, and uh, Mm -hmm. so I don't really stick with any one character for very long. Um, As a result, I'm not super terrible with every with with a lot of characters uh, that most people kind of just don't touch. But I'm also not super stellar with a lot of characters either. Um, mm-hmm. It's just a really fun way for me to play Smash because I, I like yeah the, I like the size of the roster and and like I was saying I, I would hate to waste a lot of the, the characters that most people don't like yeah. Um, but as far as like my favorites, um, I really like Shulk. Uh, I liked Olimar and Brawl as well, which I think Ben <laughs> can also attest to from a couple of years yep. ago. Um, I like Villager as well, um, and I really like uh, in Smash Four. I like Shulk, Robin, and Corrin. Nice. All right. Well, everybody, thank you all so much for listening. This is the Endo Nintendo Week for today. 
If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or subscribe to us on YouTube at Gamnesia TV for bite-sized discussions from the show. And please head to iTunes to leave us a review. We're really working hard to make this show great for you guys, so those iTunes reviews really mean a lot. And they also help a lot of listeners discover the show. So if you haven't gone to iTunes, left a review, please do. It's greatly appreciated. If you have feedback for Nintendo Week, please send it to colinicamnesia.com or you can find me on Twitter at Colin McIsaac. And remember to send in your questions about Nintendo, about our show. We love engaging with you guys, and we read them and talk about them here on the show in that Mystery House segment. So that's a great way to get involved. Uh, again, that's colinicamnesia.com, C-O-L-I-N at G-A-M-N-E-S-I-A, and at Colin McIsaac, C-O-L-I-N-M-C-I-S-A-A-C. Alex, where can they find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Legend of Lex, and also if you'd like to discuss that Nintendo controller concept a little more, I'll try to be active in the comments on my article. Excellent. So, uh, if you can't wait till next week for more of our stuff, you can head to Gamnesia.com to see more gaming news as it happens. We've got Sony, Microsoft, Indie, you name it, and even Nintendo news that we didn't have the time to discuss on this week's show. On our way out, please enjoy a wonderful remix of the Route 26 theme from Pokemon's Johto Games by Pokerus. It's called New Horizons, and I chose this song because I think, you know, things may seem to a lot of people like Nintendo's going to hell and all the way back. Um... You know, you may hate the idea of a radical new controller for the NX. Uh, you might hate the idea that Zelda Wii U would go cross-gen. Uh, you might hate the idea that the Wii U is getting games like Color Splash and Amiibo Festival. But uh, I think this time as we move forward with the NX, as we go into Nintendo's next generation, I think it's really defined by hope and optimism more than anything. Uh, I, think, I think this is a really wonderful moment to be a Nintendo fan as we move in the future. So... Uh, so I, I want that message to be the one you take away here. So thank you guys so much for listening, and we hope that you have another great week. So the next question, if Google Docs will f***ing stop freezing on me! Oh my god. Can somebody else unhighlight my answer? Yeah. Oh. <laughs> it just keeps scrolling and scrolling and ben, scrolling ben, forever. Ben's doing things. <laughs> Thank you. I can't even see it. I'm all the way down at Brick Yo-Yo.